been investigating the case of the Forgotten Three for almost six months. Over the last six months, we spent a lot of time covering victimology, tracing the boys' movements, profiling the crime scene, and analyzing the medical evidence. Over the last several weeks, we've been focusing our attention on Damien Eccles and his potential involvement. And at this point, it doesn't appear that we have very much, if any, direct evidence of his involvement. At best, we have some circumstantial evidence that is also at best questionable. There's a good potential that he actually has a stronger alibi than most believed prior to us covering this case. And in my opinion, it seems very unlikely that he had anything to do with the murders of Stevie, Michael, and Christopher. He does not fit the profile of the crime scene. There's no apparent motive whatsoever. No one puts him near the crime scene. And in fact, several people have claimed that he was elsewhere during the commission of the murders. But as we've mentioned leading up to this point, there is one strong link to putting Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin at that crime scene, and that link is Jesse Miss Kelly. Most people with even any cursory knowledge of this case are aware of the fact that on June 3, 1993, Jesse Miss Kelly gave a taped confession to the West Memphis Police Department where he implicated himself, Damien Eccles, and Jason Baldwin in the murders. This confession has been hotly debated for over two decades. Those who believe in the West Memphis Three's innocence believe that it is a false confession. And those that believe in their guilt believe that Jesse was truthfully and honestly confessing to the crimes. And even with all the shifting details that you're going to hear once we get into his confession, those are explained away by many as just misremembering or mixing up details. Next week on this show, we're going to take a deep dive into the interview with Jesse Miss Kelly. But before we do that... I wanted to take a minute to educate myself and you to prepare us to do a thorough and accurate analysis of the interview. In order to do that, I have requested the help of former FBI Special Agent and Department of Defense contractor Tim Clementi. Tim's expertise for his entire career has been in interview and interrogation techniques. And today, he's going to explain to us good and bad practices in interview and interrogation and also give us an idea of what we should be looking for when doing a thorough statement analysis. So without any further ado, here's Tim Clementi. We have a very special guest on the phone with us today. Uh, you all are very familiar with friend of the show, Jim Clementi. But for this particular interview, for what we're trying to accomplish right now, is to try to kind of educate us all on proper interview and interrogation techniques. We're actually going to be speaking with Jim's brother, Mr. Tim Clementi. So first of all, Tim, thank you for taking the time to come on the show and helping us out. Thanks for having me, Bob. No problem at all. And I'll go ahead and let you start with kind of rather than me trying to explain it. Can you give the audience a little background into, uh, I know you're kind of semi-retired now but what you did, where your specialties were, and how your expertise kind of falls into place when it comes to interviewing and interrogation. Well, I started out as a cop with the St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department, working in uh, what is arguably one of the most violent cities in the world, certainly in the civilized world. Uh, advise uh, with a couple other cities in the United States for the top honors as far as most homicides or murders per capita or most violent crime. So that's where I started my career. Then I transitioned to the FBI and. Uh, in the FBI, 
the things I learned working on the street with the, the lowest of the low, the dregs of society, gang and drug criminals, primarily uh, murderers, was that you have to be able to establish a rapport with people that are not from your standing in life. And it's one of the toughest things for people to do. But having done it on the street as a cop, becoming an FBI agent, it was simple for me. Whereas an FBI agent that, that came from a law firm or an accounting agency that goes into the FBI that has a very white collar background, it's, it's kind of difficult to make that transition to dealing with the lowest of the low. There's an expression that the crime occurs in hell. You don't go to heaven to get your witnesses. And it's very apropos. So when I got into the FBI, uh, one of the first uh, extracurricular courses, I'll call it, that I took in, in the FBI after the academy when I was on the street was an advanced interview and interrogation course. And what it taught us was that the FBI agent's mission really isn't to arrest people. It's not to find bad guys. It's not to solve crimes even. It's to find the truth. And you get that truth primarily from talking to people. No matter what kind of an investigation it is, all investigations at some point in time involve talking to people, interviewing or interrogating them, and getting the truth. And the truth is hard to come by because most people are either A, nervous, they're hiding something, or they have other reasons why they don't want to tell you the truth. And so my specialty became flipping people, talking to defendants, talking to people that we didn't even at the time know were defendants, getting not only accurate confessions out of them, but cooperation. And it's, it's a big jump from, uh, I didn't do it, to confessing that they did it. And it's a huge leap to go from, I didn't do it, to confessing I did it, to cooperating, I will help you get the other people I did it with. So that was always my goal. It became uh, one of my areas of expertise. I worked uh, international narcotics for my first several years, and I had a, a very high success rate in flipping individuals, getting them to cooperate, and moving up the uh, chain of command in a drug organization like the Cali Cartel to get one guy to flip on the next guy above him and that guy to flip on the one above him continuously up multiple layers. Uh, and then it also served me well when I worked counterterrorism, spending a lot of time in the Middle East and interviewing, interrogating uh, terror suspects. That's in a nutshell, a big nutshell. Right. That's it. <laughs> okay, so let's get right into that as far as trying to find the truth, because that's a big issue in this particular case. And I know you're not familiar really with the West Memphis 3 case, which is exactly why we wanted to talk to you, because we don't want anybody with okay. a lot of bias in the case already. But but we have a, a very similar situation where someone went from, I didn't have anything to do with this, to flipping. And what we're trying to assess in the coming weeks here is, did he in fact actually flip and give a true account of what happened? Or is this a potential false confession or coerced confession, anything along those lines? And so before we get mm -hmm. into the phase for us where we're going to start analyzing the statement, we wanted to talk to you so you could kind of educate not just me, but the audience on things to look for. And so when we're trying to find the truth, can you walk us through when, when you're, do you ever do statement analysis or interview analysis of other interviews after they're done, or even ones that you've done to try to determine if what you got was a, a true confession? The way the FBI ordinarily does an interview or an interrogation is it starts out with the basis of rapport building. So it's very different from uh, an interrogation where it's confrontational and you're trying to force a confession. So when you look at confession that has any question about whether it was forced, there's generally 
allegations that are made. There's, there's, you know, overbearing personalities that are used, good cop, bad cop. But in the FBI, what we ordinarily do, and it's very effective, is rapport building. I don't go in saying, look, you're going to, you're going to hang for this. You're going to, your buddies are going to turn on you. One of you is going to go get the death penalty or get the electric chair. Which one's it going to be? That might be effective in some circumstances, but more often than not, I would go into an interview of a suspect and say, look, you don't know me. You don't know anything about me. And I know very little about you. But what I do know is that you're in a tough situation right now, a really tough situation. You are probably in the worst moment of your life. And the one, the one thing you have on your side that you don't even realize is on your side that can really get you out of this mess as best as can possibly be done. And it doesn't mean you're going to walk away completely scot-free, but your best opportunity to live a normal life ever again is to realize what that last best hope is and who your friends are and who your real enemies are. And I want you to know that the guy sitting across the table from you right now is the best friend you'll ever have. And you may not realize it now. You may not realize it next week or next month, but someday you will turn to me and you will say thank you. And you'll say thank you to me because I will have freed you from a life that you know is going in a terrible direction. And I will help you get your life back on course. And I'll do that because my obligation isn't to you. It's to the people of this city, this state, and this country to try and undo past wrongs and prevent future wrongs. And the way that I, that I do that is by making sure people that who have done wrong don't do wrong anymore and are brought to justice for the wrongs they've done. And I'm not talking just about you. I'm talking about other people that may have been involved with you, people above you, below you, beside you, that may have been involved in a greater conspiracy that I believe you're involved in. And I know you know whether you're involved in or not, but you have to realize that you have a lifeline right now. And if you reach out with that lifeline, I promise you, I will do everything in my power as an FBI agent to make sure that you get the best possible deal you can from a prosecutor. I can't give you a deal. I can't make you promises. But what I can do is go to a prosecutor and say, you know what? This guy was very truthful with me. He was helpful. He helped us find the other perpetrators. He helped us uncover all this other truth. And because of that, I believe he's already made a turn. And that turn is a 180 degree turn to turn his life around. And so we've gone from now dealing with a criminal to a guy who's on the right side of the law trying to assist law enforcement in solving crimes. And that's a very big step. And when I go in front of a prosecutor or in front of a federal judge and explain that, it's extremely helpful to this suspect's future. And when they see me doing that in court, they realize what I said in that first interview or interrogation was truthful. And now I'm not just trying to get them off scot-free. There are some people that I have gotten completely without a, a minute of jail time because they've done tremendous things above and beyond anything criminally that they had done. So they more than uh, made up for and atoned for what they had done wrong, but they also prevented other crimes and got other criminals that were far worse than, than anything they had done. So that's, that's how we go about it. We go about it by developing that rapport and literally showing this person how I am truly on their side. Because if they do the right thing, and if I help them do the right thing, it's for the betterment of society.
The end result, like I said, isn't necessarily to put somebody in jail. It's to prevent crimes, find the truth, and make sure that any crimes that have occurred that we couldn't prevent, criminals, the real criminals are brought to justice, and justice is brought to the to the victims and their families in some way. Right. And, and you know, in, in this case, it was a very similar circumstance. The individual that whose interview we're going to be analyzing, uh, the police weren't, at least not in the, the tape portion, weren't uh, bullying him. They used a lot of the, you know, the same same tactics, you know, where they, as a matter of fact, in the pre-interview they used, and, and it's something that I haven't been familiar with in other cases, you know, where they'll, they'll draw a circle and tell him, you know, look, you know, inside the circle is where the bad guys are and we're on the outside of the circle. Do you want to be on the inside or the outside? So they, they absolutely used that same uh, rapport building techniques. And, you know, there you could hear throughout the interview, you know, offering him a Coke and they want anything to eat. So it's certainly not anything uh, where he's strong armed. I, I guess I guess a, a focus for me from what, what I want to know when I when I start to really analyze the interview is with that technique, because what you just described is very similar to the technique they used. Mm-hmm. Is there a risk? of eliciting uh, false information or a false narrative and, and namely if you could touch on where the risks are if you have somebody who is either a, a juvenile a youth or someone with a diminished mental capacity um, by using the, the those techniques of rapport building and getting them on your side yeah i think when you're dealing with both those those groups uh, those that are of diminished mental capacity and or juveniles where they don't have a true understanding of a either reality or what's in their best interests. Interviews and interrogations are tools that probably shouldn't be used in those circumstances. Like a juvenile should have a parent present, a defendant who has diminished mental capacity isn't able to make decisions for themselves as to whether or not they want counsel present. So I'm not even sure that a Miranda warning to somebody like that would stand up in court. I know in the FBI, we we wouldn't proceed with an interview or an interrogation in either of those circumstances because it can always be questioned later on. So if you have somebody that is vulnerable and, and vulnerable to suggestion, like somebody who's a juvenile who maybe looks up to authorities or or is terrified by authority and or somebody with diminished mental capacity, it's going to have a much different effect than it does on a guilty person who I literally, I'm offering them a lifeline. I'm saying to them, this can go one of two ways and you know what the bad way is. Let me tell you about what the good way is. If I'm dealing with somebody that has the um, mental capacity of, of a preteen child, then I'm not doing my job if I'm even confronting them in an interview or interrogation. Because there has to be some protection for somebody that does not understand their own protection as far as civil rights, as far as the liberties given to them in the Bill of Rights, their you know Fifth Amendment rights and Fourth Amendment rights. Uh, if they can't understand those things and can't understand the need and the necessity and or the desire to have counsel present, and as an FBI agent, I don't want somebody to lawyer up and shut up and have a lawyer come in and say, okay, my client's not going to talk to you. That doesn't do anybody any good, but they have to be aware that that's an option. They have to be aware that they have that choice. And then they have to willfully give up that choice to have counsel present. And if they're either ignorant or, or don't have the mental capacity to even consider that, 
then they're really not making that choice and they're not waiving that right effectively. They're not, uh, they're not actually giving their consent to the interviewer interrogation. Sure. And so my background is I was in, in, not in law enforcement per se. I was a, I was an arson investigator in my previous life. And so, you know, I had to study a lot of interview and interrogation tactics. And, and I, I think that the fire service takes a little different approach than the, than law enforcement in, well, at least in some of the cases that, we, that we've seen here. But one thing that, and, and you touched on it a minute ago, and I want you to kind of go back to that is, especially with anyone who is young or the diminished mental capacity, we were always taught to absolutely avoid suggestion. Don't yeah. su- suggest anything to them. And can, so can you talk a little bit about that and, and why that's so important? It's important because, uh, again, if they're terrified by the authority sitting across the table from them, there's a natural impulse to want to please those with greater power over you. You know, you're sitting down in a room and you're with royalty. You're going to want to please that person. It's just a natural human instinct. And especially when you're trying to build a rapport, the rapport goes two ways. They also have to have the desire to build a rapport with you or nothing develops. There is no rapport building if it's only one dimensional or in one direction. And so with a juvenile or with somebody of diminished mental capacity, it's very often the case that they're seeking encouragement, they're seeking confirmation that they're doing the right thing. And if they are trying to seek those things during an interview or an interrogation, they might say, do, or agree to things that are not true, that they otherwise would not agree to, only because they're hoping to get encouragement from the person on the other side of the table. And that's not an effective interview or interrogation. It is not effective because, again, our job is not to get a conviction. It is to get the truth. Whether the truth sets this person free, sets someone else free, or condemns this person or condemns someone else, the objective is to get to the truth. And it's very difficult to do. It's time-consuming, but it has to be done. And you can't always get to it immediately. But the problem is that if you're trying to go that shortcut and, you know, when you have a juvenile suspect or a mentally challenged suspect, it's just not in law enforcement's best interest to force that hand on this person and try and make the person who doesn't have the mental capacity to do so fit into what should be a conversation between two adults. And in this circumstance, it really is not. And so that power of suggestion is overwhelming for some personalities. And if it is, then you are not effectively doing your job as law enforcement. You're just not. statement analysis, you know, I work primarily potential wrongful conviction cases. So I'm in, in a lot of them, there's a confession, you know, so I'm analyzing interviews to determine if this, if this was indeed a false confession or if it was a true confession. And one of the things I look for, especially in the, in younger kids and those who are mentally challenged to try to identify if the confession was born out of suggestibility is almost, and I, and I've seen, as a matter of fact, we interviewed, uh, we analyzed an interview just last week, um, a different interview. And, and it was so easy to see there was, there was actually a direct parroting 
from line to line where, you know, like a, yeah. a, a child would say, you know, I had, you know, they were carrying a bag and then the interviewer would say, was it a bag or was it a briefcase? And immediately says it was a briefcase. That's not even interviewing or interrogating. An interview and an interrogation is to draw information out of the other person, not plant information in them. And so it defeats the whole purpose because I don't want to say, oh, was it a blue bag? And then they say, yeah, yeah, the blue bag. I want to say, tell me about the bag. Color it was, did it have handles, straps? You know, what was it like? Was it something that you would see a kid carry or, or an adult? You know, and, and I want to ask questions, open-ended questions that can't be answered with a yes or no answer. Mm-hmm. I want them to be descriptive in everything I ask them because I'm drawing details from them. I don't want to implant any details in them. The only detail I want to implant in them is, look, I'm an FBI agent. What I do for a living is find the truth. And I will find the truth. And I know you know what is true and what is real and what really happened. But you have to know that if if I don't know it right now, I will soon know what that truth is. So it's in your best interest that we both come to the truth right now and talk about it. And let's talk openly about it. Look, I'm not going to slap cuffs on you and take you and put you behind a, uh, bars right now, but it might happen. And if I find this information out from somebody else or some other means, and I have to come back to you with that information, and that information is then in the form of an arrest warrant, then guess what? I have no choice but to do that. Slap the cuffs on you and put you behind bars. But right now, I don't. Right now, we're having a conversation, and I would like to get from you the information you know to be true. And I only want the truth. I'm not looking for stories. I'm not looking to point the finger at somebody else. I just want you to tell me the truth, and then let's figure out the best way to present this information to the people above me, the prosecutors and the judges, so that the best outcome possible happens. And so, you know, tell me about that night. Tell me what happened. Who were you with? Just give me the story. What happened? And then, you know, then we'll discuss how how best for you to tell your story, whether you should write it out now or maybe we should go have another conversation with the prosecutor. And so this is how it goes. This is the rapport building. So I I don't want to say to them, at eight o'clock on that night, did you go there and do that? I don't want to do that. I want to right. say, you tell me, give me what you know to be true. And hopefully I know enough detail that I can verify from the get-go what's real and what's not. Right. And so that helps me establish whether there's fabrication going on altogether. They're lying or there's mostly truth here and they're still trying to protect themselves a little bit, which is totally natural. I'll I'll get more truth out of them if I can get them to come down the path of telling me at least some truth. But for me to say, did you and and give them questions they can either A answer yes or no to or B just latch on to my suggestions, then I haven't gotten any information from them. I've just planted information. Right. In my experience, and I was taught I had I had a very good mentor as I was it was coming up in my career and he taught me the art of silence you know, where we ask an open-ended question because what we were always looking for, and correct me if I'm wrong, if that's, if that's the same type of techniques you use was if someone's going to confess, uh, cause you know, in the, in the fire service, arson confessions are big because the physical science is, I mean, it's considered junk science in some States. And so we would ask an open-ended question and look for them to give us a full flowing narrative. We were taught to never interrupt 
right. Take notes if you have to just try and remember. And then the follow on questions could, could come later, but don't interrupt when they're giving detail that very well may be key and accurate. Yeah. And then for us too, if they would, I was taught if they stop their narrative, if they pause, I was taught it was, it sounds silly, but I was taught count to 30 in your head before you say another word, let them stew on it for a minute and let them decide if they want to start talking again. Uh, because it, the big thing that, w- that was hammered into me was the last thing you want to do is to give them information, to, sug- to have them just parroting back what you're saying to try to get out of the room, and then you, d- you haven't found the truth. You might have got a confession, but you haven't found the truth. Exactly. That's very true. It's uh, what is the objective? That's what you always have to be reminded of. And if the objective is to get to the truth, then allow the truth to come out. Um, and that long pause that you're talking about is very important because it might feel threatening to some people, that silence, but in reality, you're, you're allowing them within themselves to internalize what they're doing. And most people, a confession actually feels good. It's, I, I'm a Catholic. We go to confession. It's, mm-hmm. We go to a priest. We tell it openly to a priest because they, it then becomes a conversation and they can ask you follow on questions. And you give greater detail and that greater detail in the end, you know, if you feel like God has forgiven you and you're absolved of that sin, it's a great feeling. And for for a suspect to be in that same circumstance where they're harboring information and guilt that they want to be freed from. And sure, they want to be free not only from that guilt, but having to serve any time or do have any uh, penalty for that guilt. We can't exonerate them in that way, but we can make them feel a little better. They've gotten it off their chest. You know, it's like having a terrible secret that you're holding from somebody you wish you could tell them. Having the ability to tell someone that secret can sometimes be very uh, cathartic. Let's move on here then to once once someone decides to confess, you know, they decide to, to come clean, to let it off their chest. What would you expect to to hear when you're listening to in an interview like that, where the, the suspect says, I'm ready to confess, and you say, okay, tell us what happened. What is that, if it's a true confession, what does that look like? It usually looks like there's a relief in the person. The, the stress kind of flows out from them. And seriously, they look physically relieved. And they just say, you know, I knew at the time I shouldn't have done it, but I just was caught up in the moment and I just started doing this. And, and, and then this led to that. And they're usually very matter of fact. Oftentimes they're apologetic, you know, even they're apologizing to you and they didn't do anything to you. But so what you'll see is that the sincerity should be there. If they're just kind of telling a story and trying to remember things that they think you want to hear. It's like they're trying to drag things out in rote memorization rather than confessing and telling a story. And that part's kind of what I what I wanted to hit on, where you just said they're telling a story. If they start telling, giving you this narrative and it's a true confession, kind of a linear a narrative that has a, a beginning, a middle, and an end. Yeah. Generally, it'll be chronological. And you know, when somebody's lying to you, one of the things you can check that afterwards, after they've told you the story is start going backwards and having them recount things in reverse order or out of order and see if they made it all up just now, they won't be able to recount it in the exact order. It was if you force them to take it out of succession. 
So that's a tool you can use to, to verify things after the fact. But generally, when somebody tells you the story in a, in a very logical order, as if they were reliving it, then there's a very good likelihood they're reliving it. Right. And that's, you know, as an example, if you were listening to an interview and, and they said, okay, well, tell me what happened. Well, I, I got up in the morning and I, I met up with this individual and then he shot him, you know, and, and there's, there's several steps that, you know, that should be in between there getting to the place, the times in between there to me, listening to something like that is, is a red flag. It's like, well, what happened to the rest of the narrative? How do we get from, you know, nine in the morning till noon with nothing in between? Yeah. Generally, the greater the specificity, the greater the accuracy. And that we use that when we're ascertaining whether a threat is real and generally when, when a statement is real. If you can recall specifics with great detail and blend them into your story, that's very hard to do when you're trying to make up the story and get to the end point. So if, you're just, if your objective is to tell a story and get to the end point, there's a lot of detail you're going to leave out because your objective is not to tell the story. It's to get to the end point with somebody just being truthful. Generally, they will be able to recall things. You know, I, I was driving down the street. I looked out the window. I saw her walking on the side of the road. She was wearing this beautiful flower dress. It was really short and, you know, she just looked amazing. And so I decided to pull over. You still tell a story like that. It's a lot different than uh, I saw her and I raped her. There's a lot, like you just said, there's a lot that just got left out in that sentence. Yeah. And I think you Where put it very well to say that because in, in, in interviews that I, that I've analyzed that I feel were, were false confessions, I noticed that same thing where to, I mean, I, I've, I've analyzed interviews where, you know, there's a whole day of events when someone's confessing or supposedly confessing to this crime. And within the first minute, they go from when they woke up in the morning until the person was dead that quickly. That's, uh, very suspect, in my opinion. The last thing I want, I want to touch on here, Tim, and I don't know how much of your expertise lies in this area, but when we're talking about confession, so we've, we've talked about some things to look for in a false confession, things you shouldn't do in an interview, how you should conduct an interview. Um, but another thing that, that I, I've spent a lot of time studying and I'm still trying to learn more about is when I'm look, analyzing any kind of statement is really trying to understand how memory works. You know, you mentioned, you know, driving and in, in, we were driving down the road and I saw the woman in her flower dress. Um, can you talk a little bit about how memories work and how we, you know, how we recall them and how our senses kind of. Yeah. Your senses are very much involved in memories. I'll give you an example and it's kind of, it might sound weird, but, uh, I don't know when you grew up, but when I was a kid, baseball cards were a really big thing. And the baseball cards had a little circle of color on it. And we used to flip cards where you'd, you'd flip one card and on, the other guy flips a card on top of it. And then when you had two matching colors, you took all the cards. Mm -hmm. And so there are times where I'll see two very similar colors, like two people pass by wearing similar green shirts, almost the same color. And I, if I flash back to being in sixth or seventh grade, sitting in the, in the cafeteria, flipping cards or out in the, in the schoolyard flipping cards with friends of mine that I haven't thought about in 50 years, but I, and I, they're very vivid memories and I can tell, I can recall an entire incident because of a color. And sometimes it'll be a smell, a sound. Your, your sense of smell is one of your best memories. You'll smell bread cooking and you'll think of your grandmother when you were seven or eight years old, uh, baking bread. 
and the memory that that reconstructs and reforms in your mind is based on the smell you're smelling or a sight you're seeing, a color, a sound, anything. And so if people can give those details, you know, I was driving down the street. I was listening to Who'll Stop the Rain, one of my favorite songs. And I looked out the window and saw this beautiful girl walking on the side of the road wearing this bright pink, like neon pink dress. You know, there's a lot of detail I just gave you. So those kind of things, that's that's a memory. That's I can make it up. I can do it. But then if you cross examine me, if you then say, okay, you said she was wearing a blue dress, but and she was on the left side of the road. And do they do they come back and say, no, 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 no. She was wearing that bright pink neon pink dress. If you could have seen it, it reminded me of, you know, those are indications of truth where I can go back to that detail. That, that I talked about because that memory is vivid for me. On the flip side of that, it's an indication of deception when you make a suggestion that's different from a memory they described and they agree with it. it might, Absolutely. You know, so if you said it yep. was a pink dress and then 10 minutes later I said, so she was wearing, you said it was a green dress, right? Yeah, it was a green dress. Then that, yeah, those, those are big red flags. Yeah, it's a big red flag that the details aren't real. So the story probably isn't real. There are times in your life. Now, you have to remember that you're talking to a person about what is likely one of the most stressful events in their life. Even a serial killer that kills multiple people, the actual kill is stress-inducing. And there's all kinds of hormonal changes in people when they're under extreme stress. And when you're doing something criminal, there is going to be a reaction in somebody. I mean, an absolute psychopath, uh, maybe not. But the average person, so that the incident we're talking about at this moment is something that probably induced a lot of stress in that person. And so it probably, when you're under a great deal of stress, there's different physiological reactions within your body. Sometimes time slows down. Sometimes you get tunnel vision. And in that tunnel vision, all of a sudden, what's directly in front of you is much more vivid and real. And so there's there's a lot that happens physiologically that will affect your memory. I've been in shootouts where time slowed down literally hundreds of times. So it's not like a, the shootout might have lasted 12 seconds and it seemed like an hour. And so that's slowing down 50 to 100 times its normal rate. And I can vividly recall what would have been less than a tenth of a second I can talk to you about in two or three sentences. Like the trigger, the pull of my trigger, the movement of the hammer on my gun, the movement of the, the suspect in his gun. So those vivid details I can recall because it was it's what any normal person would consider to be a stressful incident. And because of that stress, whether I'm the good guy or the bad guy, we're both under stress at that moment. He's shooting at me. I'm shooting at him. He's committing a crime. I'm stopping a crime. I'm also the victim of a crime. So everybody involved in that scenario is under stress. And so there's going to be a lot that causes emotion to rise and also the physiological changes in your body to happen that make your memory more vivid. Your fight or flight instincts kick in. And so these things later can be used to help you recall that event. And that's something that I used as an instructor in order to help my students retain information. 
was to try to tap into the you know the affective learning domain, the the emotional centers of the brain, because of the way that kind of cements memories into your mind, and then again helps you recall them later. Mm-hmm. And it depends on where in the brain these memories are. You know, you hear about if they're looking down, they're they're making it up. If they're looking up, they're recalling. There's no real pattern to that. It depends on the person. So what you have to do is establish the pattern for that person. When you're interviewing or interrogating someone, you can't go by the, oh, they're looking up, so they're lying, or, oh, they're looking up, so they're telling the truth. Right, tea Um, leaves. You have to establish that. So you establish that by talking to you. So, Bob, tell me about your childhood. Where'd you grow up? And I know where you were born. I know, you know, a little bit about you. So you tell me things and it's, it's verifiable. It's the truth. And, uh, you know, I notice uh, you go by the name Bob. Uh, is that your given name? Then you might tell me, no, it's actually Robert. Okay. And who, who are you named after? Well, I'm named after my, my uncle Bob, who was my mother's brother. You're establishing so, a baseline. I'm establishing a baseline. We do this with polygraphs and we do it with interview and interrogations. So that baseline is very important because I want to see how you react when you're not getting questioned about something that's threatening, when you're not thinking about something that was extremely stressful. I want you at the most calm, most assured, most self-confident you can be because I want to get you there again, but I have to start by getting you there. Right. So. I'm going to talk to you about these things. And did you have any brothers and sisters, Bob? Yeah. Oh, you have three sisters. Really? Okay. Uh, did they call you Bob, Bobby? Did your older sister like call you Robert all the time when she was mad at you? You know, things like that. And, and you tell me about it. Yeah, yeah. I had an older sister. Too. So now I can see how your, your uh, nonverbal communication skills are when you're just talking normally and you're not under stress and you're probably telling the truth. So then when I start getting into what happened and you start telling me stories, are those nonverbal indications changing or are they remaining the same? Right. If they're changing, that's a, an indication that something else might be changing. You might be going from telling the truth to fabricating, lying, deceiving, withholding information, whatever it is. And when we talk about, you know, so we've kind of talked about how memories are, are built around the, your senses and your emotions and all that. And so then we take that back into analyzing an interview uh, and we're looking at someone, you know, I, I think we both agree we should be, you should have a free flowing narrative with a beginning, middle and end. You shouldn't be suggesting anything. But one of the things that I was always taught to, to listen for is, are they including in their memory any of these sensory and emotional memories? Like, you know, I just, I remember, you know, we, we walked in the woods and there was a funny smell and. And I was, you know, they, this started happening and I was, and I was scared and, and I was, I felt nervous. Is, is that true for you? Do you listen for a lot of, a lot of those yeah. indications of true memory? Yeah, exactly. That's that. And that's what I was saying about the stress of it, because all those things will be recountable because of how they felt. It's not, you know, no matter what the circumstances, you're, whether you're a victim, a suspect or law enforcement involved in, in an investigation under a stressful moment. You tend to remember things better because if it's an inconsequential moment in your life, it's not locked and seared into your memory as it would be if it's a very consequential moment of your life. And obviously, when you're committing a serious crime, it's consequential because you recognize the consequences, whether you accept them or not, you recognize them. Exactly. Well, Tim, I really appreciate this. I think this is a a great starting point for us to all have kind of a a lesson in what to listen for next week 
when we here on the show go through the uh, the confession and interviews of Jesse Miss Kelly, uh, would you be willing to in maybe in two weeks to come back on and give an analysis after you have a chance to actually listen to it and give us your analysis of this specific interview that we're going to be covering? Sure. Awesome. Well, Tim, I'm going to let you go with that. Thank you so much for your time, and I look forward to talking to you in a couple weeks. Thanks, Bob. Same here. Now that Tim has given us a very thorough lesson on what we should be looking for when analyzing any interview or witness statement, I think that we're now prepared to, as a team, all of us together, analyze in detail the interview and confession of Jesse Lloyd Miss Kelly Jr. Next week on Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is your executive producer, and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. And Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com designed and created our Season 5 logo. A special thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website. And also a big thank you to our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Anna Dindorf, Britta Bliss, and Stephanie McConnell. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 a month we also have reward levels on the Patreon page that include access to the behind-the-scenes videos of the taping of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation in the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can follow along on Twitter at truthjusticepod. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on the case. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.